This is another episode of the Blossom of Thought podcast. I'm your host, Mpilongambule. My featured guest today is Mangoba Mabuza, a public relations practitioner who has served in various organizations, including the government of Eswatin under the Minister of Health. And he also worked for Swaziland Competition Commission, but now he's a communications and public relations officer for Waterford Gamklaba United World College of Southern Africa. He's also an author of a book, The Lane Taken. Mangoba, welcome to our show. Welcome, Bilo. Thank you so much for having us. That's awesome to have you here. I've looked forward to this interview. Um, I know you've got a lot to share with us from uh, your experiences in life, leadership. I can uh, tell that the leadership traces back to high school. Can you just take us uh, through the rabbit trail and, and let us know who you are and uh, how you have passed through successive uh, experiences of leadership? Um, well, I, I, I come from a, a rural village in the south, in the northern part of uh, Eswatin, uh, which is called the Peaks Peak. That is where I come from. I grew up in the village and um, I think a lot of experiences, early childhood experiences have shaped me and I've learned a lot from it. I lost a father at the age of four years and I also lost a mother at the age of 13. So I think all those experiences, being a last born also in the family and growing up under that type of those type of circumstances, I think has actually shaped um, or raised my consciousness in many aspects. That is why I, I, I started to have some interest on the subject of politics and leadership in general from an early age. I think that's, that's my that's my background, my brief background in terms of where I grew up and I grew up in a rural village and um, yeah, I used to look after goats and yeah. So you were doing shepherding, so to speak. <laughs> yes, like every boy in the village, I was looking after goats. I'm looking after cattle, so I was, I was a shepherd. <clears throat> that's, uh, that's interesting because I, I had that experience too, you know, you know, when you wake up as a Swazi boy, you have to go to the Kekli, um, to the crawl and take out the cattle and take them to the field, to the grazing fields. And you have all these experiences and being exposed to nature, enjoying natural fruits and all that. But I want us to get into what we have mentioned, losing parents early in your life that have been uh, not a good experience. How did you fare in your life after losing parents? We, we expect that parents are the ones who take us through school and provide for us and all that. Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a very difficult situation and I wouldn't wish any, uh, that situation to anyone uh, because I mean, like if you are young, um, starting your teenage years and you are losing, you don't have both parents. But I think also the support I got from my siblings because I, as I mentioned, I'm the youngest. Uh, was amazing but I also when I went to when I went to high school I was also fortunate to get a scholarship and um, the, that experience taught me to work hard for whatever because nothing came easy so I, I have to work for everything you know when you are for instance when you are when you've got a scholarship you don't have an opportunity to, you don't have the luxury to fail and uh, you must also <laughs> make sure that you're amongst the top students so that you justify to the funders 
why they should support you. But also even the siblings, I mean, look, they, do not, they didn't have an obligation to support me. Only parents would have that sort of um, obligation to do that to a child. So that type of experience is having people who support you. And then it also helped, it also, it pushes you to work hard or for anything in life. Oh, all right. Let's talk about your mother. You lost her at the age of 13, but already she had already had an indelible impact in your life. Tell us about that one. I think she's one of the she's one of the she's the strongest woman that have I've met in my life, uh, because I mean, look, in, as a peasant mother in a rural village, was unemployed and um, living like the ordinary life of any any woman in a village, but being able to support her kids to raise them without a husband, giving them an education, something she had never enjoyed herself. Um, I was raised by an, a totally illiterate mother. She had never been to school, but her belief in education, her belief in empowering her kids, and not just her kids. At some point in time, I stayed with a cousin, a younger cousin, and he was also coming from, he was coming, my cousin was coming from a background where education wasn't taken serious. But as soon as she, as she stayed, he stayed with us. My mother said he cannot stay with a child who is not going to school, he must go to school. So she believed in education, she believed that Young people must be given an opportunity to go to school. And um, yeah, you could see her selling a goat, the very goat that we were keeping. And they were shepherding as a young boy. You could see her selling a goat around December, January, so that we could go to school and they have school fees. At the time, you know, there wasn't something like the what we call now often vulnerable children fund in Switzerland, where government is basically giving education funding to to vulnerable kids. So at the time there was inside, so she was paying. So that type of personality, um, I think she's a woman of character, someone that um, helped me to believe uh, more in, in, in hard work and commitment to say, regardless of your circumstances, but if you work hard in life, everything that you wish for, because now everything that she wished for, um, I come from a family now of people who are educated, who have got careers, all of them. And uh, I'm, I'm the youngest. I'm also in my, in my own uh, comfortable career space. And I like that. And that's why I speak so fondly of her. I'm very, yeah, I become emotional that I talk about her because I learned a lot. And uh, she is the first person that inculcated in me something that will, 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 will not just go easily in me. I, I take that to be a miracle. I, I think sometimes we look of some theophany or epiphany somewhere to happen before we can speak of it as a miracle. But this by itself is, to me, is a miracle that out of somebody who is uneducated and never been to school, so to speak, but she was able to work so hard and produce graduates to me, that's a, a miracle in your family. I think these miracles happen again and again in, in our communities in Africa and especially in Swaziland. But we don't appreciate and celebrate such um, occurrences or we seem to be not very conscious. As I've said, we tend to expect some epiphany to happen before we can be appalled and want to speak loud. Let me go to somebody that has occupied 
space in your life. You've been married since 2018 to a lovely, brilliant woman, Nelly Siwe Mabuza. When, where did you meet? <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting story. We we first we first we met at we first met at the University of Swaziland at the time it was called the University of Swaziland. It's now called the University of Swaziland. We met at a tuck shop, and at the time I was in the student representative council, and our offices were just behind the tuck shop. So we, I used to frequent there. So I met this very lovely woman uh, with some beautiful eyes and I couldn't take my eyes off her. And that's how we met was I introduced myself and that was back in 2009. That's where I met her. And uh, quite a lovely woman. The, the rest is history. We intro I introduced myself with the chat. We exchanged numbers and then we started communicating from there on. So I've, uh, we've been in love for the past, uh, since 2009. And then, um, so you can, and then we got married in 2018 after so many years of dating before that marriage. So yeah, um, she has shaped me also. She has, she, she, she completes me in many aspects. Mm. Um, I love her and uh, I, I wouldn't trade her for anything. She's the woman behind, beside me and she supports me and we, I do the same. She has got a career of her own that I support and I believe in her. And she does the same and we are just uh, we, are, mm. we just have that type of relationship. Was it was it love at first sight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe, I believe it was. <laughs> I believe it was because we hadn't met before then, so I didn't get to meet her in any other space, maybe sports or meetings or whatever. Just met her, boom, and I liked her. The, we liked each other from that moment and yeah, that's how it started. How has she contributed to your career, the man that you are, the man that you are becoming? Yeah, look, she does. Even now, um, I'm on holiday and it's a weekend in, in here at home. And uh, she's the one who believes in me in terms of let us set up a space for your next meeting. And she's that type of woman who believes in my ambitions. I'm a very ambitious young man and I, I work hard and she pushes me to work even more harder. When I published my book in 2018, early 2018, if not mistaken, yeah, she was there besides me and she's the person who, she believes in me. She believes in everything that I do. And I think she always pushes me to work hard. She challenges me to do more. And we also do many things together, traveling, having fun, taking long drives together. And and yeah, and she, she does not, she, yeah, she also, I don't know, she's an all-rounder. <laughs> she's an all-rounder. <laughs> Recently, yeah. you were on holiday with her and you posted on Facebook, the 27th of December, it is about noon. You went to, Tofa, I mean, you went as far as quoting Thomas Jefferson, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What was going on in the mind? What was going on there? Did you, were you able to get me? I, I was saying recently you have posted on Facebook when you're out on holiday and you quoted Thomas Jefferson 
that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I could see there is a photo of uh, yourself. <laughs> it seems like you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> what inspired you to post such words? <laughs> well, it was, uh, it's, it's actually, we, we call it a family holiday because that's her birthday, the 27th of December. And also that's the day we got married two years ago. So um, it's, it's just a lovely moment. And it just reminded me of the life of liberty that we live together. We are very free. We're at ease with each other. We are just independent and um, um, free like that am um, amongst each other. And also that we always remind each other of, the importance of living a life of happiness mm. because in this life we yeah so that's just that, that was in my mind when i posted that that here is someone that i live my life with i celebrate my life with every day in pursuit of happiness because we believe in happiness the both of us believe in happiness and what is one trait or skill or virtue that you value in her she's uh, i i think she's she's, she's organized Mm -hmm. She's very organized. I think, you know, it's something that is very rare in, uh, in the society that I, I live in. There are many disorganized people around. So she's able to do a number of things and, and do them so efficiently that you would think she got assistance from other people. So I value that a lot. And um, yeah, I think it's the, the, the organization on her part is at another level. Something that I think has is also contributing to a prosperous family life that we are living and also um, contributing to our careers and other things that we do. Seems like you are having a very great marriage. How do you balance your out-of-home life, your career and the family life? I'm sure that's not an easy thing to do. You know, you've got various roles uh, as a, a person. You... I understand that you are in the community you give service. There's a Premier League team that you are a peer of, and you also have just your career that we will talk about later on. The important thing here is how do you do the balance? Well, I think my um, I learned to manage a calendar at an early age because of my circumstances, as I told you earlier on. You know, it teaches you balance in itself. And then when I went to high school, I was lucky to go to, it was a public school, but the organization and the discipline was at another level. So you would think it was an international private school, a template and a high school. So it also instilled in me these basic elements of life. Like you need to manage your life, you need to do planning. So I plan, most of the time I plan. And people will be like, and some people think like, what I do, Baba all those things uh, at football level, people think that I'm full-time there. And when I do Ubuntu Leadership Academy things, people think I'm full-time there. And when I do other things in the, on the sidelines, my political activities, people think I'm full-time there. Um, and those that I work with even at work, at Waterford currently, they think I only do that only. I'm involved in a number of things and I'm able to do them I think fairly well because of planning um, I also give my time for family life but it affects it 
um, you, you can't run away from that. But because of the support that I get, so I'm able to balance because I plan, I keep my calendar, I do some of the things at night, I do some of the things on weekends. But we also, I also work hard not to affect the weekends, going to church on Sundays and whatnot. So, yeah, it's about balancing, it's about planning. Uh, but most importantly, it's about making sure that you keep your organization, your personal organization at another level. Take us through your, that's great to, to hear. Take us through your leadership journey. I, I know it traces back to high school where you were a head boy. So, uh, and then that goes all the way to the present time. And you've been, uh, I would say you're a political activist. Can you, t- you know, give us a piece of that? Yeah, leadership. I think my I started to be more involved in lead, in leadership at a time back at high school, where I served as a prefect, as a head boy at some point, and also as president of the debate club. So, um, yeah, it. I think that was the formative years of my leadership. Uh, yeah, because it teaches, it taught me a lot of things. Being responsible, teaching people to, to, to get results at the end of the day, pursuing your goals, being efficient. And then I think when I got to university, I also was a secretary of the Mass Communication Society. I got into the SRC where I was the chairperson of the Student Representative Council before I was elected in the, to the Swaziland National Union of Students as president. So all these, uh, for me, the students' years, I think from high school to university, it taught me a lot of things that you must respect because all of them were just democratically elected position. So it, they taught me to respect people. They put you into position of authority because they have got trust in you. So you must reciprocate and make sure that you do not betray the contract that you have with those people that elected you because they have got trust in you and they, you must always be loyal to them. Yeah, and then that was how my political life started as well. I have been to, uh, I served in Podemo, Podemo Youth League, the People's United Democratic Movement in Swaziland, the Youth League structures. and the, that Which is, is the opposition the party in Swaziland. Which is the main uh, the opposition, Swaziland's liberation movement. And uh, I served in the Youth League until I was the deputy president. I served as the international secretary, and I served in various portfolios at regional level up to national level and uh, yeah and um oh, also i think in recent yeah, yeah. sorry that i am hoping in there which I, when you are still talking about it I, I i want us to backtrack a little bit into your leadership when you were at university of swaziland every leader hops in into leadership because they have they see something they want to do something for the people that they're leading uh, they provide that kind of that high level of service, I, I believe. What was your vision for the University of Swaziland when you campaigned and you were elected to be the chairperson of that local government at the University of Swaziland? Yeah, what was in my mind at the time I got into the, I, I campaigned into the position of SRC chairperson was I wanted to bring back the dignity of students. Uh, I could find that students could not get enough respect. Uh, they were not uh, taken seriously. 
and I just wanted that policy shift in terms of students being um, being respected by university authorities, but also at government level, whenever policy are passed. And I, I, that's, that's what pushed me really. I could see that students were an important stakeholder, but a number of issues were being, um, policies were being passed without consultation with students, without their voice. So that was in my mind when I joined, um, when, I, when I launched my campaign, uh, seeking to get into the SRC. You, I, I remember I was uh, in the university then, you were very critical of the present regime, <laughs> the government of Eswati, <coughs> and uh, you were outspoken. I will expect, in fact, you will hear even people, you know, people they get afraid when somebody, you know, as young as you at the time at university, just takes up this Goliath and you start speaking against the leadership of the country, people will be like, oh man, is he not afraid that he may be arrested, maybe, you know, expelled from school and all that. Didn't that fear, you know, visit you at that particular time when you were, you know, providing that leadership at the University of Swaziland? Uh, look, Mbilo, uh, for me, I don't. I, I think I don't. I don't fear. I don't like the word fear. So I believe that I'm. I'm responsible for for decision that I take, and I'm responsible for whatever. And I. I always prepare myself to stomach consequences of my decisions. So I didn't get into politics or or leadership uh, roles by mistake. It wasn't by accident. The circumstances itself. They, they, they pushed me to be where I am. And uh, I don't think if you live a life of fear in this world, you will die without achieving anything. You will just die very quiet. No one will remember, even your kids will not be proud of you. So I remove fear in whatever I do. I mean, look, what would I fear? I lost parents that by age of 13, I had lost both of them. I lost a father at four years. So I, my life was a life of hustling of commitment, of hard work, of fearlessness and courage and, and pushing and working hard. And, and you, you can't pull me down. You can't bring cowardice. You can't scare me on anything. So that's, I think, that is something that it doesn't come natural. The circumstances, the conditions have shaped me to be who I am. And uh, I think that is, that is what I think lots of people uh, didn't know at the time that this guy, <laughs> a lot of people are worried, as worried as you are, that hey, this guy is pushing it too far. But also I think lastly, I, I, I hate, I hate, this was a regime, I, I hate, I don't, I will never mince my words when I, when I speak about that. The lack of democracy and basic freedoms in Switzerland yeah, I cause for concern for any peace and democracy loving person. So fighting for justice and democracy in Swaziland is a correct cause. Whatever the co whatever the, the the consequences, whatever the whatever whatever they can be thrown against to jail, death or exile or whatever, torture, whatever, it, it's okay to suffer for fighting for 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 that, for those basic freedoms. I, I hate it that I, I feel it's a barbaric and backward regime in the 21st century to be ruled in the manner in which we are ruled, where we do not have the right to, to elect a government, to have a say, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of assembly. And I believe that people should not be afraid to stand mm. up for, for what is right. 
I think you've got a point there about fear. You know, I've read books where there's demonstration of how fear has paralyzed people. People have died out of fear. You know, almost every leader seemed to have had a moment or moments where they're struggling with fear. But as Stephen R. Covey says, feel the fear and do it anyways. So it seems like fear, there is that element of fear that people do fear, but they you know that they, they apply that high level of courage in order to be able to to accomplish i'm impressed by your you know your sacrifice going above the feelings of fear and choosing to you know to labor not just only for yourself for your family but for the masses to have that kind of vision i'm interested to know when did that idea of wanting to you know to work for the masses to work for a democratic Swaziland begin? Um, I think it all began at, uh, I think growing up, I could see a lot of suffering in the village. I think that is what, that was my first contact of political consciousness, seeing people suffering and uh, lots of young people being deprived of an opportunity to go to school a lot of unemployment in the community. Young people cannot get employment opportunities. Even others going as far as university, coming back to be in the community, the, the poverty level, malnutrition, people dying from curable diseases. I think that shaped me because I could see that someone must do this thing. But who is that someone? So growing up, I was told government, government, government. And then it's supposed to do APC, it's supposed to do PAP. And uh, everyone pointed out, no, government is not doing this. Government is not doing this. So this word government, government. So when I went to high school, I, um, I read lots of books, history books. And I started to, even my teachers will tell you at high school, I started to question a lot about what is this government? And uh, what, is, what must it do? How does it get to be established? Who establishes this government? So I, I started to read a lot of books about government, democracy, people must select the government into office, they must have a contract, four years, five years, they renew, there's periodic elections, people can uh, reject the government that does not deliver to them. So getting into high school, so the, everything started to grow, the passion, then the, the, the consciousness. And um, yeah, I think when I, you know, as you, know, as you grow old, because I was young at the time, very young, and uh, very tiny, young and but very, very inquisitive, very curious about to know uh, about a number of things. So everyone was giving me this information because I demanded a lot of questions. I asked everyone, teachers, people who were old, reading and all those things. So the political consciousness, I think, was raised at that early level. So when I, get to, when I got to university, now there are other people who are affiliated to political parties, uh, people who believe that uh, we must have multi-party democracy and so on. So I even asked lots of questions. And then I said, no, this is, I can join this thing. This is correct. It's correct to fight for democracy. It's correct to fight for a better public health care system. It's correct to fight for a, an education system that is good. It's correct to fight for good infrastructure. It's correct to fight for justice, for peace, for stability. It's correct to, so I, that's how I think I wouldn't necessarily say at this point in time, but I think growing up, up to university level, because at university then, I started to get into partisan politics and uh, joined the political party, started political classes, and um, started to, to be involved at community level. 
uh, engaging communities, educating them politically, um, working with trade union closely with civil society. So the consciousness now is, be, is being raised and now um, you can't touch me and I cannot go back. Now I'm looking forward to this new Switzerland that we all must fight for, this democratic society, this free society, this society where people will have the right voice, people will have APC. Up until the point of conviction now, and now I think you uh, come what you may, I, I honestly believe it's correct what we are doing in terms of seeking for a good political space to civilize the society, to bring justice to the society, to fight for them, it is correct. And I think it's worth dying for even. So, yeah. Mm, it, it, you seem very passionate uh, about what you're talking about, about politics. And I think I like that because, uh, and you, you've mentioned the issue of fear that there is something that is above fearing the idea that you want to help and see the lives of people being better through an education system, through healthy system. Let us go into what is it that you will have changed in the kingdom of Eswatini? What is it that is not right on the ground now? And what is it that you, you, you will hope anybody who is in leadership, who is coming in, may change and have uh, the people experience? Um, can you please come again at us as in getting? Oh, okay. If, if... Yeah, the question is, what is it that you will, uh, you will see change in Swaziland? What kind of change will you want to see? Or if somebody comes in to provide leadership at this time, Oh, in fact, I should just rephrase that. In what is it that is happening on the ground that is not right in Switzerland, and what is it that you would like to change about it? Yeah, what's 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 happening on the ground that's not right is for a family to one family to preside over the lives of the thousands of people, the one point two million people, to to appoint a government that we did not even sit down to discuss. That is not right. What is not right in Swaziland is, uh, is to have a regime, is to have a family giving us a prime minister that comes from one surname, even one to give us a prime minister every five years. What is wrong is to call people to a national care clip every after five years, sit them down and make them feel they are involved here, that you are, yet you are giving them a prime minister. What is not right in Swaziland is uh, a parliament that does not have power. You know, at some point there was a parliament that elected the speaker of the House of Assembly, but the head of state said, I'm not going to open parliament if you elect the speaker. So a parliament that doesn't have power, they come in there as individuals, uh, political parties are banned, people must be allowed. What is not right is for people not to be denied an opportunity to come together, form an association, form a political party of their own choice and discuss politics, discuss how best they need to be governed. What is not right is for a, a family to loot the resources that they are looting. You know, if you look into the figures, they, I think now it's, a, I don't know, I think it's close to about 5% of the national budget goes to the royal family. And by 5%, I'm not saying they are, they are done. They also go in every sphere of the society. They are there, they, they, are, now, they are now business people. They trade in every sector of the social society, they're pushing everyone out. After all, they've got absolute power. That is not right. What is not right is for those that govern 
to oppress, to, to beat people up, for instance, to lock them in jail. So even journalists, even people, even the very same, just for raising an opinion, journalists being beaten up and locked up for writing, what type of threat is someone uh, bringing in society for writing, just for mere writing something? And uh, because we, we live in a society where we do not know each other's opinion. So because to raise an opinion will, will invite imprisonment, will invite closure of opportunities for you if you aspire to do a lot of things career-wise, even in the corporate, people will be frustrated to an extent of being denied a space to get into the corporate, no matter how educated, no matter how experienced. So what must happen in Swaziland is uh, we need a democratic government. That must be a product of the will of the people of that country. Only then can we then start to rebuild, to build an economy, to talk about healthcare, to talk about uh, economic policies, to talk about developing infrastructure, talk about improving lives of young people. But now you can't because the interest of this family that rules Swaziland is not there, it's not people-centered. After all, they are not elected by people. The people that they appoint themselves are not elected by people, so they pay allegiance to them. They are their psychophants and the bootlickers. So that's not right. So if we were to get into power, people were to get into power and trust them through a democratic vote, that is why they must change. And then we can start to rebuild the economy. Because I believe Swaziland, Swazis have what it takes. Swazis are capable of uh, electing amongst themselves who amongst them can best govern the country. And Swazis are capable of taking charge of their, their country, but they are not, they've not been given the opportunity because of the system that is there now. Well, you have made mention of your distaste for the royal family that because of what they do and the way they uh, they rule. I've had arguments and, and sometimes they were report, uh, reported by the newspaper how members of the royal family, they have the strong belief that, you know, kingship comes from God. <laughs> and uh, that's something that I'm interested to hear from you. Uh, what's your view about that? Because when I trace that argument, it goes back to the 1700s. There was a, a philosopher, English philosopher by the name of, uh, let me see if I find him, it's, it's Robert Filmer. He wrote a book entitled Patriarcha or the Natural Power of Kings that was published in 1680. You see, so the, I've read the book. He goes on to try and make a justification about what is a proposition is as far as the divine right of kings. I think might have had that proposition, the divine right of kings. And that has uh, been propagated almost everywhere in England, uh, how they've had kings ruling them. And you you see how justified somebody will say that in Swaziland. I understand a lot of people believe in in that whether that's correct or not correct, that's something else. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Robert Filmer was attacked or dis, uh, um, opposed by, um, who is uh, the, another English ph philosopher um, who is the writer of, uh, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but he's very famous, he has inspired even uh, the writings of Thomas Jefferson in the U.S. or the, li the liberation of the U.S. from the English, and it led them even to fight 
wars with England in order to be able to provide a democratic space for the American people. I'm, I'm forgetting the philosopher, but I'll remember him. So he, he took him on, he took, he took Robert Filmer on, on the idea of divine right of kings. But I don't want to take the space and the time and uh, talk about what they were talking about. I just want to hear what's your view because people believe and the royal family believes that, uh, believe in the philosophy of divine right of kings. You know, kingship, kingship or monarch, they survive because of a number of reasons. One of them is the inv their investment mm. uh, in, in the poverty of ideas in society. They put so much resources to make people poor in terms of their intellectual capacity and their lack of understanding and their lack of consciousness generally. So this ideological bankruptcy is their best weapon in society because now they are presiding over a nation that is apolitical, that is apathetic, that does not take interest in many things, that is passive, that is naive and submissive. That is how they thrive. One of the things, for instance, that they will, in Switzerland, people are oppressed uh, using culture as a weapon, one of the biggest weapons, because the culture, the, the, the so-called culture, the way it has been manufactured is in such that Swazis cannot celebrate their culture outside of the royal family. So you could see even in the syllabus, the, 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 you know, as early uh, first grade in primary school, you are told that the king, the, you are taught about the king, the, 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 the historical background of kings in Swaziland, how correct the kings are, how they died, then this one, even the praises, the praises of kings. You find a whole page or two pages of a book as early as grade one, grade two, standard one, at primary level, a whole book talking about praises, praising and sending of praising the king. So this thing is inculcated into the mind. So now there are songs, they use the media. Uh, I think it was Antonio Grams who talked about the two ways through which they survive. One of them is the ideological apparatus, the use of media, the institutional society, the church, the, the education, the curricula, the, the syllabus to inculcate the ideas. So I think that is how kingship survive. But when you look at it in totality, it's just a backward form of government that maybe used to happen back in the days, but that must change. There's no doubt about that. You know, a civilized, modern, um, modernized world must not be ruled in the manner in, in, in which we are ruled, for instance. So I don't necessarily blame people who believe that the monarchy is alpha and omega of the society. The monarchy is the good thing ever to happen. It's because of many years of indoctrination, systemic and systematic indoctrination of the society, by the way. The, the, in the, the way they have invested in terms of sinking people into poverty of ideas. You to, even the poorest of the poor in Sweden still believe that the king is okay. Even the most malnourished person, the one who is suffering from hunger and curable diseases, who, is, who has been... Um, who is on the other end of, of the socio-economic divide, they believe that the king or the monarch in Sweden is the best thing to ever happen. They, to an extent that, no, it's not the monarch, it's the people that are appointed into positions. They are the ones who are messing up with the king or the, the way we are governed, but not, not the king, not the royal family. So that's how they are taught, to blame each other, to, to criticize anyone else. But the system, but I mean, the, but the family. So that's where it comes from. But 
that's why change in society must come. We need to spend time educating our people, our communities. Uh, we need to invest in campaigns at government level, both overt and covert campaigns that are meant at uh, um, purifying the minds of our people, putting them into fires of ideological uh, engagement and discussions and reading and debating and discussing, raising their consciousness. You need to help them to unlearn what they have learned over years. Um, otherwise, the, the, the family thinks that it's God-given, it's, it's God right to preside over our lives and to rule us in the manner in which they do. What I've heard from people is uh, they seem to struggle to see leadership from the opposition in, in Swaziland. It seems like there is no alternative. Uh, the way things are, it seems like it's, they are better off with what they have, having the kingdom, having the king being in the most uh, powerful political position. In your judgment, is that a fair judgment by the people? Yeah, it's a fair judgment. It's a fair judgment. People don't fight for ideas and abstract things. They, they, they are looking always for concrete uh, things, material things, things that they can touch. They always want to see who is in the forefront and uh, what type of a person is that person who is in the forefront? Can we trust him or her? Can we, can we, can we, can we put our lives in the hands of that person? So people reduce it. They'll reduce it to personalities, to people. So if they are not convinced that the leadership, because everything like um, uh, John C. Maxwell says, everything arises and falls on leadership. Everything, on, don't blame people. People, masses will always demand, if Swaziland were to change today, people will be listening to the person who is in charge tomorrow. You'll be calling the shots, you'll be telling people what to do, what, where, what is the next move. So people will always be like that, but they want to be convinced about who is in the forefront. So in my view, and I think that's why I say it's a fair judgment, we have, we have failed to provide a, a convincing alternative for our people. We have failed to organize ourselves um, at a level where people will say, we can trust these guys to lead us out of this misery. Instead of them saying it's better the devil that we know um, than the angel that we do not know, we must convince them. And we, they do not owe us anything, by the way. The masters of the people of Swaziland do not owe us anything. Us activists who are fighting for change, they do not owe us anything. Instead, we owe them everything because to whom much is given, much is expected. For us with political consciousness, we believe this must change. So much is given, so we must do more. The expectation is that we need, therefore, to show leadership. So I, I, I agree. I think we, it's a question I was talking to uh, another comrade this morning about the need to organize ourselves. Because you see, when you talk about the seizure of state power, when you talk about the political transformation of a society from one uh, from A to B, then you're talking about something serious. Your level of organization must show, must convince everyone that these people, we can entrust them with our lives. We can be sure that indeed they can lead us. Go to South Africa during apartheid. Um, the whole of South Africa was in agreement that the ANC leads, the ANC under the capable leadership of Oliver Tambo was a government in waiting. 
So that is not happening in Swaziland because we do not, you have to win it. It's not just given to you just like that. You have to win the trust of people. So that's something that we must fight every day for, to convince our people that we are the alternative. As you fight something, you need to be producing an alternative because people will have to, because once you, you won't rule Swaziland tomorrow on the basis that you hated the previous system. You will rule it on the basis of what policy are you bringing in that will change the lives of our people. Because our struggle for change in Swaziland is not a struggle that seeks to replace one person or one regime with the other one. We would not want to just cut and paste, remove this, come with this, put it there. We want fundamental change in terms of the standard of living for our people. If today we are talking about a, a collapsing healthcare system or a deteriorating economic uh, situation, we want a, a government that could get in there and lead us into victory in terms of the healthcare, education, in terms of economy, in terms of um, um, a number of these areas. Uh, so it's not about just removing this. Uh, and remember that a freedom fighter today can be a dictator tomorrow, oppressing the very same people. Because lack of ideas sometimes uh, gives birth to dictatorships because you are failing to come up with creative ideas of how to transform the lives of people. When they start questioning you, then you beat them up in a new government that is supposed to be democratic. And then it starts all over again. So it's a fair judgment on the part of... So our people are right. We must produce an alternative uh, uh, as early as now. As we fight this one, we must be able to mobilize them around alternative policies and say, this is the new Swaziland that we are looking for. People want to fight and die and lay their lives on the basis of something concrete that they can touch with their hands and say, yeah, this is worth dying for. We want a better life. There are various systems of government in the world. The Americans, they, they hoist and, you know, speak about capitalism. Some other places, they speak about socialism. Which one <laughs> do you hope for in Swaziland? And what is the current state of affairs in Swaziland in terms of these systems of government? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> to be honest, uh, I do not like reducing the agenda for change to, to isms, capitalism, socialism, social democracy, communism, or whatnot. I always like us to debate the police alternatives in terms of what's best for Swaziland. For instance, in Swaziland, our, our soil is arable. You can today go to any, most of the society, I come from the northern part of Swaziland, where you just put in something on the soil, then to, it, it uh, it, it's, it's there, you, you, you are done. Let's talk agriculture. Let's talk about how we're going to boost investment. Let's talk about what we want the state to do. In a new source, then, for instance, we do not want the state to, to give a tender to someone to buy toilet paper. The state can do that. We can buy toilet paper. We don't want to give someone, instead of paying one Lilangen for a toilet paper, you end up paying 50. A uh, for that toilet paper because we have given a tender to someone to then mark up and collapse the economy. So those are the type of policies that we must discuss. For instance, we must discuss whether or not uh, currently the the most dominant company in Swaziland is a company known as the Biotagangwan, 
which runs the economy, which has got shares in the mines and every sector of the economy, agriculture, property, and that's a royal family combined. We must talk about how we take that back into the hands of the people of Swaziland and education. Uh, to, to build the capacity of the state to do things, we must talk about how we want to transform the civil service to be more efficient and more effective in Swaziland. We must talk about how we want to, to take back the Swazi Bank into the, from the hands of the royal family as it stands now. It's just a, an institution that is being used unfairly, yet it's supposed to be a bank of the, of the state. So we must talk about how, what we want to do with it. We must talk about what we want to do with our parliament? What we want to do? How do we want our political parties to be to be to be managed, to be organized, and all those things? So, ism sometimes it works for one society. You know, if you go to the Scandinavia, for instance, Norway, Denmark, and them, you find a very workable system there, where it's a kingdom, but the, the royalty ceremonial, the hands of the state is, I mean, the the the, the democratically elected government presides over the state apparatus. So I don't have a problem with that, for instance, in Swaziland. It can be a Mabusa family, it can be the current family being called the king. The Masegos, I'm told they are kings. They can also assemble their own kingship. I would not have a problem with that. But the state, the, the state must be in the hands of a democratically elected government. That must be given a mandate to transform the lives of people. So instead of talking about socialism, capitalism, and whatnot, capitalism is uh, <laughs> private sector. Putting the putting the economy into the hands of private sector is not working. Hmm. But also, the state cannot do it alone. The state cannot do it alone. We also need people. We need we need the private sector. So that's why I think it's not about the isms and the and the type of economic system. Uh, mm. Per se, in terms of saying we're a capitalist, we're a socialist, we're a communist. No, I think it's about what's best for us. You mm. know, for instance, what's happening in China is working for China. Would it work in Switzerland? I'm not sure, but it's working in China. Call it communist. What's working in Cuba? It's working in Cuba. Look at their healthcare. Look at their literacy rate. Look at their life expectancy. Because the 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 success of a government must be measured by the standard of uh, the quality of life of the people. So what's happening in Cuba is working. You may not like it, but it's working. They call it communism, call it socialism, call it whatever, but it's working for them. Would it work in South Africa? I'm not sure. Would it work in Mozambique? I'm not sure. Would it work in Switzerland? I'm not sure. So I think every society must be given, but you cannot deny the fact that it's a capitalist society where a private sector is pushing for neoliberal policies, putting the economy into the hands of the, uh, the private sector, and then government being reduced to provision of traditional services like roads and whatnot. So that must, I believe in my view, that must change. Government must also have a stake. I mean, must also have a responsibility on the economy, must drive the agenda for economic transformation. Don't leave it in the hands of private sector, which is driven by profits. But do we need private sector? Yes. Do we need them to drive the economy? No. I think that's our, that's our policy position. I'm not sure about uh, easy. <laughs> it seems like in my judgment, as I listen to the arguments, to your arguments and listen to the arguments <laughs> all over the world, socialism, capitalism, China, the socialists, they say, you see, look at China, what is happening where the state is the <laughs> capitalist. 
and they are saying it's working. But the critics will say China is silencing dissent. China, in China, they are killing the Chinese people. They don't want religious movements to, to flourish, to thrive, because people will start, you know, measuring the standard of whatsoever everybody is doing according to a higher standard, such as the moral standard or the standard of the God, call it, call it what you may. So they decide to make the state um, or others. I, 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 was, I was going through some material the other day. Somebody mentioned that the religious movement in China is, this, is the China Communist Party. You are not allowed, Christians are being butchered, the members of the Falun Gong are being butchered, the Buddhists have been killed. There is a, a state or public example if you believe and you have a dissenting opinion. I don't know if we can say that's success because those are the kinds of arguments that people have. When you turn to capitalism in the US of A, you have, I, in my judgment, you've rightly pointed out about the issue of uh, capitalism being profit-driven such that you end up becoming unethical. You don't care about the people. It's only a selected few at the top of an organization that make the money. And then we have this yeah. uh, uh, struggling. Um, what's your comment? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think... Um... Okay, well, I, I, I do not, believe, I do not uh, agree with governments that are repressing people for whatever reasons. I don't believe people must be killed on the basis of what they believe in religiously or culturally or otherwise. As long as it does not affect the next person, people are free to exercise whatsoever. So, but yeah, in terms of the economic growth, because I mean, everything, the foundation upon which everything is built is the economy. So that's where we always look at. And I think we then, but the economic growth and the advancement of the economy, um, of, of the economy and a society must not come at the expense of basic civil liberties, you know, where people are being killed and locked up and whatever. So I believe we, it's, a, it's, a serious, it's something that we need to reflect on and say, uh, some of the societies that are doing well are being questioned when it comes to human rights and whatnot. And, um, but yeah, there's always that, uh, it, it's something that we need to, something that must be open for debate. There's always, because for instance, societies that are not doing, for instance, take for instance, Swaziland was thriving economically. Mm -hmm. If Swaziland so, were having, Houses, water, clean water, electricity, free edu quality education up to tertiary level, better healthcare system, employment level was good, businesses, opportunities for young people were thriving, life expectancy was good, literally everything. If we, if we were doing well in terms of those things, happiness index and whatnot, and then someone questions the regime of civil liberties and whatnot, do you think people will take interest? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah, think people would definitely. Be, <laughs> yeah, people then start to ignore the others, even if opposition is, is suppressed or repressed. People don't pay attention because they are doing well economically. They've got food on the table, they've got clean water, they have salt, their children can play in a peaceful society, they are secured, they have education, they have a healthcare system, they are booming. So if you question as a media, maybe we question things about like freedom, media freedoms, people say, ah, it becomes boring. Mm -hmm. 
because the question of the economy then comes into play to say, let us look into the economy of the society. But as we talk about the economy, you are right, we must also look at the other right. So, yeah. But yeah. also, states yeah. are fighting. Mm. States yeah. are fighting. So sometimes another system, a system that is working in another country is just being questioned or, or what, 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 what could I say? I want to put it, some, what is working in another, what may seem working in another country is being questioned and uh, some propaganda being used against it because it's not something that we like as another country. So it, it happened like politics and the dynamics of politics. You have spoken again and again about education, healthy system. I think there's a very key uh, institutions in a well-functioning you know, state or country. What will you change in the current circumstances as far as health is concerned or within the health institution in Swaziland? In Swaziland, it's simple. Money is being used by the royal family. Once you collapse that, you change the society, you transform it, that will mean the state will save lots of money. And also in a democratic state, we are most likely to make a lot of savings. And if you claim down corruption, so you take that money, you invest in a proper healthcare infrastructure. So people now travel some kilometers to a health facility only to find, you know, I was talking to a friend who was telling me her mother moved from Ndondoz, uh, which is the central part of Swaziland, in, in Manzini region, Tumbabane for some medication. When it gets into the government health facility, they, it does not see a doctor. So those are the things that you must improve, for instance, in the healthcare system. The ratio of doctor-patient must improve. Nurses themselves. That's how Cuba did it. The production of medical personnel, expert laboratory technicians and whatnot, you need to produce, but also you need, people must find the medication. So this friend of mine was telling me it could not find the medication and now he's supposed to go and buy it at a pharmacy for about, there's a lot of money. But this, pay, this friend was saying, I pay tax and my mother now cannot get help in a public health uh, facility and I must also take money to go and buy. Another thing that's happening now in Switzerland, the private, the private clinics, uh, they are running, they are being run by people who are employed by government. They are on call from a private clinic. So they can, they can afford not to give a good service this site because they know you're going to go to Mbawana clinic or Mandini clinic or whatever clinic where you will find them. So it's, there's a whole lot of, the, the whole healthcare system, the infrastructure, the health infrastructure is, is corrupt and uh, it's inefficient. So you need to invest in producing the enough health personnel, building health facilities closer to the people so that they can able to, to get it and not travel some kilometers because in the first place, the road infrastructure is terrible. So now, now for instance, in the village where I come from, I'm told because it's raining today, they cannot move, uh, cars cannot move because of the mud. So imagine if someone was critical, he will not, because the clinic is about, how I many? I think more than 25, 30 kilometers away. So you will hardly reach there. And if you reach there, you are less likely going to get medication. So you'll move to Mbabana, which is the, another big hospital. And then if you don't find help there, because that's exactly where my friend's mother did not find help. So that person, so you need to invest in 
infrastructure, you need to invest in the healthcare, the personnel. You need also to build the facilities closer to the people. People must find medication when they get there. But most important, you must also have a, a great health promotion um, program where we talk about prevention of diseases. Because, I mean, we must not reduce public health care to curative and other uh, programs only. We need to make sure that our people, for instance, the issue of clean water, it leads to diseases. So it's linked to health care. The issue of education, the lack of a good quality education is compromising our health care because our education system cannot produce what we need in the health sector. So we end up now importing doctors and other health uh, people from outside of the country. So those are the things that must be changed now. You talk about importation of healthy uh, personnel. You know, I remember Socrates, I once read The Republic by Plato. I think that's where Socrates speaks about, uh, he questioned the education system once you start importing. He says, once you start importing jurists, then there's a problem with the education system. I'm sure we wanted to go into the education system. What would you want to change in the education system, in your view, so that we don't import jurists, we don't import um, uh, certain skills. I, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't be trading, you know, the world is living on trade. You go to your neighbors and get something that you don't have, they get something they don't have from you. Uh, in my judgment, I don't think we should stifle trade because that's part of trade. But I think Socrates at the same time has a point when he says, when you start importing yeah. jurists, then there is a problem in the healthy system. What is it that you will want to change and improve in order to have a better education system in Switzerland? Yeah. I think where you start is you started the planning, the conceptualization and the planning stage of where do we want to go in the, as a country in the next five, 25 years or 50 years or so. You don't become, you don't, you don't, you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you mustn't be narrow. Shallow, I mean, when you talk about uh, the education. So you, you start by where do you want to go as a country? Once you've defined where you want to go, both in terms of economy, in terms of the health sector, in terms of the infrastructure, roads, networks, and whatnot, then that will inform the, the education system that must come in place. For instance, it will tell you whether or not you need to create mathematics schools, engineering schools, because maybe you want to create, maybe you want to, let, let me say you want to, they, they call it Maloma there, that is being mined. There's a gold that is being stolen by the Royal Family in Pig's Peak there. which just mined the gold. I don't know where it, I think they are in partnership with an American company whatsoever. Let's say you want to take that gold, uh, mine it, and then uh, do the production here on Swazi, on Swazi soil. So that means we need to get mining engineers, we need to get APC, we need to get uh, people who are skilled in mining and whatnot. So that the education system, therefore, must be consistent with our economic goals in that regard. The same applies to the health sector. If you want to import medical personnel, you say, okay, we want a facility in every, every eight kilometer. There must be health facility. Let's make an example. So that means you need to build the facilities, you need to hire personnel, you need doctors, you need nurses, then it informs the education system. It prioritizes, right now we have got an education system, for instance, that produces teachers. There are many teachers now. 
you go to well, University of Florida and it produces commerce, the, the Faculty of Commerce produces more commerce teachers than anything else. There's the Humanities Department, Faculty, produces teachers. There's the B.Ed. Education program there, the, the, the education faculty. It produces teachers. Then we have got um, a whole a science department, the science faculty of science. It produces teachers. Then we have got one teacher training college, William Peter Teacher Training College. Scott produces more teachers than anything else. Then we've got Nazarene. It produces teachers than anything else. And then we have got uh, these institutions. Now they are teaching, produce, producing teachers. Where are engineering schools? Where are med where, where, we need to build engineering schools, we need to build medical schools, we need to build uh, all these things. If we are not in at a position where we can build them now, we must partner with another country maybe with the view to moving towards producing for our own. Because a country that relies on outside um, aid or outside um, support Mm -hmm. It's not independent. We cannot be independent. So our education system must respond to that. So you need the whole education system needs an overhaul. For instance, in the slippers now, there's a lot of superstition. You read the literature, the literature books, what is what in English. You read the stories that talk about superstition, the royal family, traditional structures. So that thing does something psychological. It has got an effect on the mind of, the, of a child growing up. So you need to overhaul it. You modernize the literature, you modernize agriculture, we modernize the geography. Because it's a contradiction. This, in this one end, in a literature class, a, a child is told about uh, a king who once had rain-making powers. That's superstitious. In this one end, he goes to geography class. In the geography class, is taught about the processes that lead to rain. So this thing is contradictory. There's no, uh, they do not talk to each other. This is not, it's talking something that the other is not talking. So to an overhaul, we need experts that are going to help us to transform. If kids in Japan or Asia or elsewhere are learning how to produce budgets, why can't we do the same thing? The world now is moving to a digital space. We are still talking paper. So that is what must change in our education system, informed by where we want to take the country, especially on the terms. And in other areas, so that's what must change. Mm. And then the quality improved. That will inform you the education system. Curriculum experts they give birth to a good healthcare system, but also partnership with private sector must be enforced, must be encouraged. I don't understand why private companies are not building schools and helping government to partner in terms of building schools and sustaining schools. I think you, you have spoken well. There is, there is so much that you have said about what needs to change in terms of, of uh, our education. Because education is very important. It's the very thing that makes you make these better decisions in, your, in all areas of your life, be it private life, be it uh, public life, and um, other circumstances of your life. Let us talk about you. You have a leader in Africa that is an inspiring sight to behold for you. His name is Paul Kagame. How has that man inspired you? Because you, you speak highly of him. <laughs> no, reading the story of Paul Kagame, President Kagame, um, is, is, is refreshing. And it's a heartwarming story. He, he left his country at, as a 
baby because of the political circumstances there, whatever happened, uh, the colonial squabbles, and after they left, the, whatever happened, if you read the history of Rwanda, they find themselves neighboring Uganda. That's where he grew up in a refugee camp, spent many years there, but with the goal to come back to his country at some point in time. Even when, even, you know, when you read the story in Uganda, I think he was a minister for defense or intelligence or something like that. And then he moved because he was in the best schools there. He was in government in Uganda after um, he was in the Museveni camp organization. And then now they move to this guy, but says no, uh, uh, with others, of course, other leaders. They say, no, we need to go back and rescue our people in, back in Rwanda. And look what, what happened. Just on uh, in, in, in the 1994 genocide, mm. where I collapsed, you know, people, there was blood all over. And if you go to, you know, I went to the, the Rwandan, the genocide museum. It's so scary when you listen to and you see the bones and everything. This guy went to lead a, a, a struggle for change in Rwanda. But for him, that was not enough. You know, he went, he invested his life in transforming the lives of Rwanda. Look at what has been done in Rwanda in a short space of time under his leadership. The, the, the index are there to, for you to see what is happening, ease of doing business, child mortality rate, literacy rate, whatnot, uh, in terms of economy, security, peace, uh, tourism sector driving, and a number of things, the infrastructure, everything that he has done, that Rwanda has achieved under his leadership. So for me, what I find to be very attractive is a man who led a struggle for change and then achieving that change together with his people and also being able to mobilize his people and motivate them to transform Rwanda in social and economic terms. So if you look at what has been achieved, where they come from and where they are now, last year I was there, I achieved, I attended the a meeting called Mshishiran, which is chaired by the president every year. And people are talking freely, advising the president from business, politicians, NGOs, civil society, people in the communities, ordinary people from the village, some of them because they cannot all be accommodated in the hall, the, the convention center in Kigali. So others are drawn through screens from all the provinces of the country. And I found that to be very good. They are advising the president. He's listening is chairing the meeting. So I'm told, no, this is a constitutional structure established solely to look into the year the, behind where they are now, where they want to go. The president gets to be advised. People are free to speak about where they want to take their country. And the, today you move around the streets, they open 24 hours. Banks are closing at 10 p.m. Other shops are open 24 hours. It's safe to move around Kigali. And I'm like, this man, so his leadership, that's how I was attracted to it. And uh, I think he's a very strong leader. He's not shaken, he's not a lot of criticism against him in some quarters, but those who do not know what's happening there on the ground. But if you have been there, you know what's happening on the ground. And you've read the story of Rwan. Every no man is perfect, but his leadership style, I like it. Very firm, but the passion that he has for his people, the love. You can see it even when he's speaking, when he's engaging with his people. And uh, yeah. So 
if you were to use the computer language, copy and paste, what will you copy from Rwanda and paste into Swaziland? <laughs> uh, no, you see, I think also the first and foremost, I think that what their leadership did was the mindset. They changed the mindset of people. Rwandans believe in themselves. You meet them on the street, ordinary people from rural area, from the village, from the townships, from suburbs and all corners of the country. They've got this belief in themselves that we can do it. We can do it. They are positive. But looking into the history, so that's the first thing. One of the things, not the first thing, one of the things that must that I can take from that to Swaziland. Because you know, when you're from a dictatorship, um, a regime that was oppressing people and repressive, people must start to believe in them. So people will be free. Even in a democratic source, then people, I doubt if they will be free to go to radio and speak. They will still be afraid and think if you speak on national radio, no one is allowed to know. Because now you can't speak on national radio against the government and whatnot. So you need to make people believe in themselves. No, now we, are, we have moved from the old regime. We are now in a new regime altogether. Feel free. Believe in yourself. We can do this thing. The education system we're talking about, the healthcare system we're talking about, these are not things for the government alone. You do it with the mobilization of the people, but correct mobilization. So these people must believe in themselves. The sense of we can do it is possible. That's what I found in Rwanda. But secondly, the leadership there is unshaken, it's firm. You know, I, there's nothing that attracts me to a leader than decisiveness. When it comes to issues of economic growth, when it comes to issues of security and peace and stability, Rwanda does not is not a child's play. You don't. Talk, that's why it's secured. It's free. One of the most free. You talk. You walk at night. You don't feel anything. They cannot steal from you. Even in a. I went to a pubs and bars. You can leave your phone. Go to the bathroom and come back. They have not stolen it. They're free. You can see that. You can feel safe. You know those things for me is because of decisiveness of leadership, but also, you know, for instance, Chow Chinese. Companies are suppressing people here, exploiting and beating up people, even in Matapa firms, even in South Africa, by the way. <laughs> you can't do that in Rwanda. You can't do that in Rwanda. Another leader, a Chinese company, firm was sent packing. Another leader of the firm was sent home. You can't do that in Rwanda. The decisiveness. And also the pan-African outlook. You no know, President Kagame has made that country to believe in itself as a country made, a country in Africa that you do not need any Western power or anyone from outside of Rwanda or Africa to tell you who you are, what you must do and what you must not do. The people must believe in themselves, drive their own agenda. That's why even him and his kids, you find them working on the road with the spades and, and holes, working with the people on the ground because they believe we, this we can do. It's for our own good. We don't need anyone from... Look at how Fonitense Rwanda, another thing that must uh, be done away in Swaziland in, in, in the future, when we take over, the democratic government takes over, is uh, this thing of getting rid of aid. But it takes time. It may take 50 years, it may take the next 100 years. Rwanda is able now to measure that, look, we used to, maybe, we used to need aid of 100% food aid. Now maybe we're at 40%. So you can't be living through aid forever. So sources must be taken from that. Our healthcare system is funded by Americans and other, other outsiders. They, you go to the education system, it was funded by the EU at some point. Even now they support us. Government must, the state must lead this, this process of improving the economy, mobilizing domestic resources. We will need aid in the first few years of taking over the government as a democratic government. But we must therefore transform, uh, mobilize our people 
to believe that they can do it without food aid. They must be able to move out of that team. If we needed more aid before, we must need legal aid in future. And we are moving towards no aid at all. Because someone who, is, who, who feeds you, if, if you are being fed by someone, you are not independent, you are not free. So those are the things that must be transformed. Uh, if I were to go there, copy and paste. And, and also this uh, overemphasis, you know, sometimes <laughs> the criticism of Rwanda is that the opposition parties, media, what, what, not allowed. No, you see, democracy does not mean people must delay us when we talk about program and progress. Democracy must not give people the luxury to derail activities. But that does not mean we will, be, we will, we will oppress them or beat them or whatsoever. But we must be uncompromising when it comes to the program of transforming society. Because otherwise you get delayed. That's why I like, you know, Puka Kame says, I cannot form political, I did not form political opposition, political parties. They are free to exist, but it is not my duty to, to preoccupy my mind with what they do. I don't care what they do. I'm doing my own thing here. I'm in the ruling party. I'm in government. I'm, I will listen to opposition. I will work together with them in parliament and other areas. But they cannot defocus my program. Mm, mm, mm. Because there is a danger, there is a danger to in most democracies to I don't know, I don't know what I don't want to use the word over democratization of society. But you see, preoccupy yourself with the program to improve the standard of people. And what people say, media is free to write and do whatever they write, do whatever, but don't be defocused from the main program. I think that's the attitude that they have taken. I, I think I think I like that point because I, that's how I've come to think about uh, how to improve the community, how to improve society. It's not about just changing power and then you've got this party in power and then it's changing. Because everybody who comes in, they want to stem their authority. They want to leave a, a, a footprint. And when they do that, they are crushing what was already developing. Uh, you know, with the previous party. So when the Western powers, they say, oh, Paul Kagame is, a, is becoming a despot. He doesn't want to leave power. In my judgment, I think, uh, which country was built in five years or 10 years if you have uh, uh, two uh, exactly. opportunities and, and, uh, to, right. to lead a country? Uh, and I'm like, mm. it seems to me, those who, who are honest, who are good, well-meaning, really serving their people. We want to give them more time. We want to, yeah. so that they can actualize their vision. We can hold them accountable and say, you promised us five and years they, ago. Exactly. And you want to. And now mm -hmm. let's see. And you are laying the foundation. Exactly, exactly. So I think to me, because quite right. Yeah, go, go ahead. And what is most important? Yes, you are laying. I think the, the, the posture that they have taken is that we are laying the foundation for future generation. We are building institutions, the army, the police, anti-corruption, competition authorities, uh, revenue authorities, the judiciary, the media. We are still rebuilding. Remember, this thing happened just since 1994. So it's still new. For instance, you do not want to compromise on security. And when you go to the underground, that's what the people are preoccupied with. They are more worried about security and peace and stability than anything else. So if you come and impose from outside things that are not in the minds and the hearts of the people, 
So you are interfering with how they are doing their own thing. Because by the way, President Kagame is gets elected by the people of Rwanda mm. through a constitution. Mm-hmm. So it's a democracy, their political parties, it's a multi-party democracy. But people make it seem he's there by force. No, he's there because people still want him into office. And democracy must not be reduced to change of office, terms on office. Mm. Oh yeah. I, I, I think that make, makes perfect sense because uh, you, you can't build anything in, in five years or in two terms. You must, uh, you know, have an opportunity to actualize your vision. Let's talk about your book, The Lane Taken. We will take a break. For, but before we, we, we get into the book, I had this question when you were speaking. Is there one thing, you know, what happens in relationships, you find that when the relationship has strained uh, and then you interview or talk to one party, the other party will be like, oh no, there's nothing good about this person. And they just, you know, make a laundry list of how bad the other person is. And you get to the other, it also does the same thing. I think it's, it's possible to do that even with uh, uh, the current state of affairs in Swaziland. I, 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 Every, I mean, a lot of people, they seem to be fed up and angry. They're talking about the real family and all this. Is there any good thing yeah. that you will spot? You will say, well, the current regime, the thing called the system of government or the royal family, I think we can celebrate them for this one thing. Is there any one thing that you can make reference to? It, it it seems yeah. like we, uh, sorry they, you know honestly we, you struggle you know as a christian <laughs> for instance for for us christians you will be told that is there one thing that you like with the devil just one thing <laughs> i understand this the devil did this to jesus the devil just did to god and he was thrown on earth to destabilize the world and what not can you point one thing that the devil is good at so you will struggle as a Christian. But we're not speaking of devil. entirely so you see him to be nothing else people. Yeah, yeah, but I was just <laughs> people. Let me just be generous. There has been some good intentions from individuals on the part of the system, of the part of the regime. Mm-hmm. For instance, there was something called Palala Fund. I don't know whether it still exists because that was meant to help people who could not be able to go to, to get a good health uh, um, a facility, to get into a, health, a proper health facility when they're in need of uh, people maybe in need of uh, um, health attention. So they will, be, they will go to South Africa, most of them, to good hospitals through this parallel fund. It was collapsed because this regime inherently is corrupt. So it's, the royal is a system that is a parasitic system that has got a high appetite for leisure and the corruption is inherent. So you cannot do away with it. So even good intentions on the part of the system have been collapsed because of, the, then they started to loot from the fund. People who are not supposed to benefit, they start to benefit from the fund. It collapses, it can no longer help the poor, rich of the poor. The other thing was the scholarship fund. The scholarship fund meant to, assist us. I learned through a government scholarship. And I think 
the, 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 the government was saying at the time, no, we cannot, we don't have the resources to fund you from primary to high school, but if you go to tertiary, we have passed, you can be able to get through a tertiary institution uh, funded for by government. But all that changed. Those are good intentions on the part of the system. Even backward and barbaric as it is, exploitative and oppressive as it is, undemocratic as it is, inhuman as the system is. But those two instances, for instance, that I'm highlighting that are coming into my mind quickly, were good initiatives by some individual, not as a matter of policy, I must emphasize, by policy and design, by the infra, by the architecture, the design of policies in the system. Uh, people are supposed to be oppressed, exploited, and nothing done for them in their interest. But I'm talking about few individuals with good intentions in the system. They made such in initiative like Parallel Fund, uh, the scholarship fund, but all of these things I'm talking about collapsed. Now we have got people who can, students can no longer get to tertiary, they, they, they collapse, they messed up the whole thing because inherently this thing is inefficient, it's corrupt, is not working, has got no interest of people at heart. So those are a few instances I can highlight, but quickly they were collapsed because by, by design, <laughs> this thing was not meant to, to improve the lives of people, even with good intentions here and there, but at the end of the day, it just died. Well, let's go, let's go back to, fair enough, let's go to your book. You seem to be involved in community service. We have written a book, The, the Lane Taken. Uh, I think we have got about eight minutes or so before we can conclude this, but I didn't want to conclude this without talking about quite a milestone. Writing, it's not easy to write a book. All of us, majority of people that you can ask, we will find that they've got some book inside them, but they've not applied the discipline enough to put pen to paper and go through the process. So let's talk about it. How did you come up with such a title, The Lane Taken? <laughs> the lane taking. Well, this book started as a result of high school. I, we used to go to high, to speak to high school students with a group of friends as part of our community service. We volunteer our time, resources, and skills to go to communities and talk to high school students and motivating them, telling them about you know. So I used to speak about five things: commitment, discipline, focus, perseverance, and sacrifice. So the. Um, the five pillars of success. I used to call them five pillars of success at the time. So when I, uh, then of course there was a huge demand from young people to have this, to have us go to a number of high schools, but we could not reach to all of them. So that's how the idea of a book, it was a, a result of persuasion by some students and young people say, write a book. So I decided to write it. And then it's, It seems like I'm having some internet issues here. You the lane taken is reason. just a, basically a summer. Um, so the yeah, so so the, <clears throat> the lane taken is a summary of mm, these five things. So I'm using examples of individuals, companies, governments that have succeeded as a result of these five things. So the lane taken, just something I just thought about when I was like these five pillars of success. They are about choice. You can choose mm -hmm. them, the lane that you can take. But otherwise, you can take something else. You can you can choose laziness. You can choose inefficiency. You can choose uh, indiscipline. You can choose lack of focus. But you decide to choose these five. So the lane taken. So this is a lane that you take. So 
That's how I just thought about it. So it's about those five things. Oh, okay. That's oh. you. You also have an academy, Ubuntu Leadership Academy. What is that? What's what's going on with Ubuntu Leadership Academy? Ubuntu Leadership Academy is a, something that came out as a result of what I um, I I thought to be lack of leadership. Earlier on, we talk about how the masses in Switzerland are saying. But even in the progressive movement, the people who are fighting for change, there's no convincing alternative. Can we follow these people? So I found this lack of leadership to be everywhere. Those who, are, who want change in society, in this one society, civil society, in business, in government, in the church, everywhere, this mm. question of leadership is there. So I said, let me have my own small contribution. So Ubuntu Leadership Academy, then I invited a, a group of friends and then we started to work on this thing. So it's basically a training institution. We are not an academic institution that gives certificates and whatnot, but we organize workshops, we organize seminars, we organize uh, even digital seminars, we organize a number of, sometimes we do reading club, mm -hmm. people read and they engage the debate. So, but the central point is the question of leadership. We want to produce leaders for the future in the country and we our, our vision want to also expand to other African countries because we want to make our own small contribution to the question of leadership in Africa. How do people get engaged in your organization? How can they reach out? Sometimes they invite us for instance churches, some youth youth uh, group, youth uh, structures from church will invite us to go there and we will tailor make our, our training program. For instance, we teach about financial literacy, we teach about uh, discipline, we teach about um, a number of things like how to behave as a leader. We, give, we talk about the uh, political economy of Africa, we talk about uh, democracy as a concept, we talk about the role of, so we look at a number of things. Sometimes we tailor make it high school, if high school students, for instance, invite us, people get, people invite us, mm -hmm. basically. Some will invite us. Sometimes we'll also just um, organize. We've got structured workshops where we get to invite people, but limited space. But most of the time, we are free to go to groups that invite us to come and facilitate. Then we invite people to facilitate. When you come back to Switzerland, oh, you must come and volunteer. We've got volunteers. <laughs> We've got different expertise who come to volunteer and do certain topics. Oh, well, I, I will welcome that. <laughs> I will consider that. <laughs> Thank you for the invite. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So in a world of IA, artificial intelligence, people are doing a lot of business online. Do you have any online presence where people can... No, not at all. The only thing that we did this year was webinars. We did a number of webinars where mostly we're focusing on the many ish, topical issues in Switzerland. So we have expert, um, expert panelists, then we invite people to come in through Zoom. And then we also had a digital um, reading club mm -hmm. when at the start of the lockdown, oh no, last year, last year, 2020, yes. At the start of the lockdown, and then people came in there, we gave them material to read, and then we started to discuss. But other than that, we haven't been doing much in terms of uh, online spaces. Oh, okay. So people can't go online but and we have, find you. We don't have any 
such a we have website service. our website we have a website oh yeah that's what i'm looking for so that people can know how <laughs> to reach <laughs> yeah we have a website the ubuntu leadership dot uh, africa oh great great let us conclude with uh, something personal what do you value in your life for me you know what what i value in life is uh, you know i've got passion for people generally mm-hmm. and what i think people deserve in this world is fulfillment and happiness um regarding anything that they do that's what i think drove me to the sub to invest a lot in politics and leadership generally and um, yeah even even my contributions in football in leadership academy civil society in writing a book volunteering my skills and everything that i do is because i want to make a small contribution to improving the lives of people so that they are better they themselves are empowered to do more to feel fulfilled but also happiness general I always say to my wife you know we deserve happiness in this world it is a, mm-hmm. life is about the pursuit of happiness which is why i posted that on the 27th of december life is about the pursuit of happiness i value happiness a lot whatever we do must also make us happy yeah. and uh, of course there are things that we are thrown at but generally life i think is about happiness i value it a lot mm-hmm. we des- we all of us deserve to do the things we like doing because they make us happy they make us fulfilled yeah happiness is very key in fact I, i remember the words of uh, some men in the 1800s who said happiness is the object and design of our existence and it will be the end thereof if we choose the part that leads to it i i think i agree with you 100% on that one we we live to be happy we are here to be happy we all go through certain challenges where we feel we second guess ourselves we we feel down you know there is what is called the law of um, a law of reading you know where we feel down where we, we we are all pumped up we are excited sometimes we feel a feeling of discouragement or despondency or inadequacy how to deal with those well most of the time i i like it happens i think you are right it happens with each and every one of us Yeah, moments where you feel down most of the time i kind of got a very great family life, life with my wife we usually socially we take drives go out do some traveling even within the country and then we just go out for a drink take long drives play music we feel good when we come back things have changed you are better off but also most of the time i i empower myself with reading reading watching documentaries going online youtube watching videos so i feel more empowered as i do that because most of the time the things i've discovered the things that bring us down make us feel down and low it's because of frustrations coming from maybe sometimes fatigue or lack of knowledge we need to empower keep on empowering ourselves but also it's important to go out man and have fun and uh, um yeah I, i i i do that and i like doing that because it's it's good you know you must not deprive yourself go for sauna go for massage take walks um, and those things you will become 
It becomes good. Don't don't just sit on stuff all the time. <laughs> and I go to ice. I also ice soccer. <laughs> oh yeah, that's great. And you remind me of Aristotle in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics. He says, "Play so that you may be serious." That's kind of like a strange language, but yeah. <laughs> it means exactly what you say. Have time for leisure to relax, so that when it's time to be serious, you have the energy to do that. So I love that language. That Play true. so that you may be serious. Let us conclude with this. I want you to think about a young person that you love, or a teenager. What is one thing that you will advise them to learn and do in order to keep up with the challenges of our time? That would be the concluding question. Can I please come again? I'm I'm saying just think about a youth or a, a young person, a teenager that you love, uh, and I want you to give advice to him or her on what is it they need to learn and do in order to keep up with the challenges of our time. Yeah, knowledge, empowering, empower yourself. Keep on empowering yourself with knowledge all the time. Don't be complacent. Don't be. Don't be. Don't be easily satisfied with what's before you or what you have. Keep on learning more. You know, someone once told me, but you know, as we go to what's the developed stage of society, the most important thing will be information. Those with information, they rule the world. And then he says, the rest are just fools following. <laughs> society, even in terms of leadership in science. Leadership in football, uh, we, we, for instance, we learn, we watch English soccer because it's an advanced, it's at an advanced stage. Hmm. So why can't we empower ourselves with knowledge? Preoccupy ourselves with trying to understand and to know how did they reach there? Read books, ask questions, the critical questions. Get, get enough training uh, about that. Now they are online courses. Be info, informed about. A number of issues. Don't just be narrow. Someone who is a teacher, for, for instance, I'm talking to this teenager right now who's about to get to university or who is at high school. I'm saying to that teenager, preoccupy yourself with this thing called knowledge, seeking knowledge. Ask the ask questions. Read. Don't only just be about playing and social life and that's it. And because the world is, is, is harsh, man. You know, we are getting into a very aggressive world where people who are not having anything to offer will be shamely humbled outside of the space to the periphery. So there must be this, you must know, you must have knowledge. And what, lastly, whatever that you do, do it to the best of your ability. If you decide to choose public relations, Go there, seek to be the best public relations practitioner around. If you choose a football, go to be a best footballer around. If you choose to be an artist, a musician, preoccupy yourself with knowledge, empower yourself. Do, most important, do, 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 and do, and do. Do something so that you are the best in that field. That's awesome. In the 1800s, Bryant S. Hindley said, service is the virtue that distinguishes the great of all time and by which they will be remembered. And it mm. places a mark of nobility upon his disciples. Thank you for coming wow. through. I wow. mean, that's very impressive uh, for your commitment uh, to your community, to your country, to your continent, Africa, your vision, your passion to serve. 
I think a lot of people have already been served by you in your life and you are yet to serve uh, a, a lot of people. Where can people find your book? Where can they find you if they want to connect with you? Um, they can find me through my personal website, mangomabuza.com. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. And my website, they will find my contacts there, what I do. And uh, I'm also on Instagram, Facebook, and um, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, this program uh, goes it, as everywhere. I think people, if who they want to uh, connect with you, they might understand how, how you pronounce or how you spell your names. I think we want to do that. It's M-A-N-C-O-B-A, that's Mangoba. And then Mabuza is M-A-B-U-Z-A. I think I've, I've, I've spelled that one right, correct? Yeah. Great. So thank you so much for coming through. We have enjoyed uh, our conversation with you, uh, Mangoba. Thank you so much for having us, Mbilo. Um, thanks a lot. Have a great day, man. Thank you. Same to you.